0: If you could send those bags around, please. We would love to give into that right now. Okay, Pastor Doug. Thank you, Rifle. Good to see everybody today. Glad you could take your afternoon to come out and be with us. You know, and um, we are in for a real blessing this afternoon. Uh, several months ago, a friend of our. Churches, uh, Doug and Carla McMurray, um, they are people that we support through the ministry here and what they have. They're, uh, the, they called the Clearing and Ministry, uh, to, to minister to people. Um, he approached me and he said, listen, uh, there's a gentleman that's going to be in the city of Richmond here in June. And he said, I, I think he would be really great to bring into the church. So he told me a little bit about it. And I said, wow, that really sounds great. Let's, See what we can do. And he was talking about Dr. Dan Juster and, uh, that Dan and his wife were here in the, in this area anyway during this time and just have an opportunity for us, for us to get to know him, for him to get to know us, come in and just share with the church here. Um, Dr. Dan has, 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 uh, uh been involved for many years for, um, gosh, 1972. That's a lot of years. Isn't there you go. 44 years. Been involved in, uh, ministering into messianic communities and churches and synagogues and, and, uh, of really just, uh, pouring into them, being really an apostolic father into these churches. And, uh, also, I guess, uh, the ministry, Tacoon ministry, is that one that you, you began and started, Dan? And, uh, it's just an equipping helps train, equip, disciple, provide materials uh, concerning uh, what God is doing in the nation of Israel today, how does that relate to the local church, the Christian church, and all of these things are things that I, I know even this morning I was just soaking it up. I was loving hearing everything, and I'm looking forward to this afternoon to see what Dan's going to bring to us because it's such an important issue that as the Christian church we need to be aware and need to, uh, to understand what God is doing today in messianic communities, what he's doing in the life of the, uh, of the local church and Christian church and, and what his plan is for the future. Amen. So I want us to stand up, if you will, get some, get some, uh, get some blood circulating in there in your bodies there. And, uh, let's put our hands together. Let's welcome Dr. Dan Juster this morning, this afternoon.
1: Thank you so much. Well, delighted that you came out this afternoon. How many were here this morning? All right. Well, it's good that you were because the pastor said, I don't want you to share the same message. That way, people who come for the second time will get something different. But then those of you that weren't here, I don't know, you just don't get You'll have to listen to it, but I may give a little review. Uh, Our ministry is a ministry to the Jewish people and to the nations. We seek to align the nations, the Church of the Nations, with the growing Messianic Jewish movement in Israel and in the other nations of the world so that they're in right partnership and alignment with each other. We have connection overseas, some 25 congregations in North America, We oversee one in, um, we don't try to do this, but it happens to us, in Rio, Brazil. I think they're gonna win all the people in the Olympics and get them healed of the Zika virus if they get bit. So I don't know what they're gonna do down there. Uh, Argentina, we're connected. We don't directly oversee in Zimbabwe, but we're part of the oversight for Ethiopia, where there's a network of congregations there. And then uh, we're very close to one in Ukraine, so you can see this is a worldwide thing. Plus, in Israel, we have responsibility for eight congregations in the land of Israel that have been raised up. So it's an exciting time to be in Jewish ministry. When I started in Jewish ministry out of a Presbyterian background in 1972, I never expected that we would see the Messianic Jewish movement grow to the extent that it has. And yet, even though we're glad for that, we have so much farther to go. Well, let's ask the Lord to open his word to us and bring us a sense of destiny, greater destiny as the church in the name of Yeshua. Hallelujah. A couple other things. I'm glad to have uh, David and Sonia uh, wine with us here from Tikvat Israel, the Messianic congregation here on Grove and uh, Boulevard. And they uh, are a wonderful couple. Uh, she used to be here in this church for a while. So some of you might be familiar. She married out. She married out into the Messianic movement. But that's okay. We need help. So you can give us some good spouses. It really helps us. So we appreciate it. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, I don't know if we had anybody sign up. Some people said they would. And, of course, you can do that by Internet. But you know, we depend on expanding our mailing list for prayer. And like I said, we don't hype people to give to our ministry, but we do have sign up cards and a sheet. But I recommend the card because if you sign up on the card and you don't have to wait on the table, you can take it back to your seat or whatever, fill it out quickly, and give it to me. You can have snail mail, email, or both. A lot of people like email today, but write really clearly so uh, our high-tech guy doesn't say, I can't read this mail, I can't find any address that it goes through on. That happens sometimes. But, you know, if you fill that out, it's a great blessing to us, uh, making this kind of a trip. And yes, there are lots of books. The primary book I spoke about this morning, Israel, the Church, and the Last Days, sold out. Uh, not that I brought a huge number, but I did bring some. But there are other books that are really, really important that are back there. One is uh, the book, The Irrevocable Calling on the relationship of Jew and Gentile, why it's important for Jewish believers to still identify and live as part of their people, that we have an irrevocable calling. I have one on passion for Israel, how passion for the salvation of the Jewish people, love for the Jewish people, going back to the Puritans and then the Lutheran Pietists became such a foundational part of the evangelical world, including the Pentecostal world. You know, we're having more of a struggle in the charismatic world. Bec- not not so much in the Far East or in the uh, you know um, third world su- majority Christianity, because they read the Bible straightforwardly, but a lot of charismatics got into a restorationism that 's so focused on the church that they just really see the church Israel and the ongoing meaning of Israel, and so really, the classical Pentecostals had this more clearly than a lot of the charismatics did today which is a painful thing, because I identify with restorationism, and I really want to see that be solidly established in restorationist churches, Uh, and that's something else um, that we could expand on someday, but not today. This morning, I spoke about Israel, the church, in the last days, and I talked about the fact that biblical eschatology, the doctrine of the last days, is not about speculating so that you can find out all sorts of information that's interesting and doesn't have any practical effect on you. When I was a young person, I used to go to prophecy conferences, and we used to learn all sorts of amazing details about what would happen on the earth And I was intrigued. I loved it. And then some years later, I thought, what would happen on the earth after we were no longer here to do anything about it, that we'd be raptured out? Do you ever get the picture of this pre-trib rapture idea? How many have studied the pre-trib rapture, that Jesus comes seven years before he comes back to earth? He comes just partway and takes the believers up, and then we hang out up there in heaven for seven years. And it's a very interesting picture when you think about it, because in the pre-trib rapture idea, the marriage supper of the Lamb is taking place during the tribulation. Did you know how many? How many were ever taught that? How many remember being taught that? You were taught that. Do you remember that? Yeah. And it's interesting because Jesus, at the same time, is pouring out the wrath of God on Earth. So what's happening is. Inside this tabernacle is the bride of Christ having the marriage supper of the land with with her husband, Jesus, but every few minutes, Jesus has to leave the marriage celebration and pour out some wrath on earth. He's He's a busy guy. And he's so powerful. Just think of this, ladies. Imagine getting married, you know, and going off on your honeymoon. But your husband is so powerful that he is able to romance you and pour out wrath on his enemies at the same time. Something wrong with that metaphor. But at any rate. But what I taught this morning was this, and I'll give you a basic breakdown of it. I taught that the Bible teaches us that Jesus will not return until his ancient people recognize him. Matthew chapter 23, verse 39, Yeshua says, You will not see me again to the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he says in uh, Romans chapter 11, excuse me, Acts chapter 3, let's hit that verse first, uh, Peter's preaching to an all-Jewish audience and he says, Repent, that God might send Jesus, he must remain in heaven until the times of the restoration of all things. But he says to an all-Jewish audience, repent, that times of refreshing may come from the hand of the Lord, and that he might send Jesus. So Jewish repentance is connected to his sending Jesus, and in Romans chapter 11, verse 15, Jewish repentance and turning to the Lord is connected to life from the dead what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If their rejection has meant reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? And Paul says, I magnify my ministry if I might provoke to jealousy those of my flesh and save some of them. So we found this morning that there are two things that the church must do as the players on the stage of eschatology at the end. The church must accomplish world evangelism to the point that we are at critical mass because Jesus said, uh, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world as a witness and then the end will come. Matthew chapter 24 verse 15. Then the end will come. And uh, so we realize that world missions is crucial to the second coming. And then we read as well, salvation has come to the Gentiles for the purpose of making Israel jealous Romans 11:11 11, 11. so therefore world missions is a key to the salvation of Israel but you never learn you never lose the focus on the salvation of Israel because the church doesn't replace Israel the church is God's instrument to see Israel saved come into her destiny and when Israel comes into her destiny only then can we all go into the destiny that God has for us together so this is quite an amazing teaching uh, that I'm not the only one that teaches this. Uh, I'm glad I'm not the only one that teaches it uh, because uh, if I did, you you know, I would think, gee, I must be off the wall to be the only one teaching this. Now, when I discovered this doctrine of the last days, I thought I was the only one who ever understood it this way. And then I found some old Puritans that understood it this way over 400 years ago. Then I discovered some old Lutheran pietists that understood it this way. Then I discovered that the Moravians under Ludwig Zinzendorf that founded world missions and the 24-7 prayer movement in the 18th century understood it this way. It was quite amazing finding the number of people that were in agreement Now, where do I want to go from here? Let me think. I want to make a good bridge for you. So anyway, that was this morning. And um, oh, oh, I know what I wanted to say. At the end of the message this morning, this is the bridge, I briefly touched on the idea that all of this has implications for the definition of the church or the identity of the church. About 100 plus years ago, I think it was 1902, I'm not sure, I think it was 1902, but around that time, there was a lecture at Princeton University, at Princeton Seminary, actually at the university, by a man by the name of Willis Beecher, and he wrote a book that I read over 40 years ago called The Prophets and the Promise. The book was recommended to me by Dr. Walter Kaiser who's one of our great biblical scholars today, who was very influenced by this book. Dr. Kaiser was at Trinity and then the president of Gordon-Conwell, one of the leading seminaries in Massachusetts. And in the book, The Prophets and the Promise, Beecher came very close to what I'm going to share with you today. Beecher said this as he was dealing with the two primary theologies that were fighting each other at the turn of the century. One was the theology Of covenant, covenant theology that said the church is the ongoing meaning of Israel and the church is Israel and the church therefore is described in the New Testament in terms that were descriptive of the nation of Israel. For example in Peter as a holy priesthood, a holy nation which goes back to Exodus 19.6. But then there was this other movement called dispensationalism that disagreed with that totally, that went back to an Anglican that had a crisis of um, disappointment in Anglican theology that he was a part of, and he sought the Lord, and he came up with a theology known as dispensationalism that was the dominant theology in evangelicalism in the 20th century. You don't need to know about it, but he's the guy that invented the pre-trib rapture. Or if he didn't invent it, he got it from a couple of prophetesses in the Irvingite movement. That's a long story. that's debated. But he's the guy that made this doctrine important. And what he taught was, no, the church is not Israel. It's something completely different, disconnected from Israel. That Israel is still a national people and the promises will be fulfilled to Israel, but the church is not Israel in any sense. And Beecher said this in these lectures at Princeton. He said... Both sides deny what the other affirms when they should both be affirming what the other affirms. And he worked this out in his book, The Prophets and the Promise. And what he basically said was that the nation of Israel is still God's elect people and the redemption of the world is still tied to them. But... The church is, in a sense, an extension of Israel into the nations, and it's a greater Israel that's not disconnected from Israel. But at the same time, Israel still, as a nation, remains an elect people, even in unbelief. But the church is something connected to the meaning of Israel. Now, that was, that was an amazing thing for me to read as a young man in my 20s. And it influenced me, and then things began to get more and more clear as I understood the gospel of the kingdom. So I want to talk about the mission to the Gentiles, and then we're going to conclude uh, this part in Acts chapter 15. Did you ever ask yourself the question why you go through Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13... And only in Acts chapter 13 is there a definite mission to the Gentiles. That you have 12 chapters of the book of Acts with no emphasis on a mission to take the gospel to the nations. You know, most people have never thought of this question. How many have never thought of this question? Yeah, all of you. I mean, you just... Do you ever realize? Isn't that pretty astonishing? And then you go back to the teaching of Jesus, and what did he say? Go into all the world, make disciples of just Jewish people. What did he say? All nations. Acts chapter 1, 8. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. Well, you remember when it says Jesus taught about his death and resurrection, how it was hidden from the disciples, and they couldn't couldn't believe it literally. They couldn't get their arms around it. They didn't understand it. The guys are walking on the road to Emmaus. We were hoping he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. Jesus reveals himself. Oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that God spoke by uh, his prophets. So the disciples, in spite of what Jesus said, did not understand the idea of a mission to the nations. It's very clear. As a matter of fact, when you go back to the first century and you understand how Jewish people were thinking of the last days, I don't mean believers in Jesus, they had this idea that there was going to be a mighty intervention of God that God was going to deliver Israel with such glory and bring punishment on the nations, and the other side of that great intervention, which is called in the prophets, what? The day of the Lord. On the other side of that, the veil would be taken off the nations and the nations would come into the kingdom of God. Where did they get that from? They got it from Isaiah 11. They got it from Isaiah 25. Which explicitly teach that. And actually, the New Testament reaffirms that. That will happen. That's what the book of Revelation is about the day of the Lord. But, because of this prevailing understanding, The disciples couldn't get a hold of what Jesus was saying about mission to the nations. And they thought, even I believe when they heard Acts chapter 1, you'll be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We're going to be God's witnesses to all of the Jewish people that are scattered in all those places. They weren't thinking Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the uttermost ends of the earth meant Gentiles because Jews lived in all those places. And their view is, ah, they thought, we get it. The full coming of the kingdom of God awaits the Jewish people embracing Jesus, so we've got to get the Jewish people to embrace Jesus. That was the mission for the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. Peter said to Jewish audience, repent that God might send Jesus. When the Jewish people repent, Jesus comes, the big cataclysm happens, the judgment happens, the nations come, then we'll go out and disciple the nations. See, they put it in their patterned understanding of how things would develop. So, if you went up to Peter in Acts chapter 5 or 6 and said, Peter, this is wonderful stuff that's happening here. But, you know, Jesus said we really should go to the nations. And Peter would look at you and say, are you kidding? Go to the nations? Give the gospel to the peoples of the world, the nations? Why would we do that? It, why, it, to go to the nations to convince them to believe in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. First of all, how is this going to be even received by Gentiles? They have no foundation for it. Why, to, to, to give... The gospel to the nations to get them to believe in the God of Israel and Jesus and all of that stuff. Why, it could take more than 2,000 years to get that to happen. Whereas all we have to do is get a few million Jews to believe and then it'll all wrap up. Do you see the thinking? There's no mission to the Gentiles. remember this morning I taught that the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. That when Jesus came, the unexpected happened, and that is the kingdom of God broke into this world without that cataclysmic day of the Lord. The kingdom only comes in fullness after that day. But the kingdom really broke through in signs and wonders and healing and manifestation And the gospel of the kingdom is the good news that if you will come to Jesus, he will put everything in your life in right order. It's the invitation into the kingdom of God. It's the invitation to see your personal life straightened out, but you can't separate your personal life from your marriage, your family, your business, your artistic life, and all the things that you're involved in. And God brings a manifestation of the kingdom into your life when you submit to Jesus. And the gospel is the good news that the kingdom has come and everything has changed. But it won't come in fullness until the end. So they knew that the kingdom had come because of signs and wonders, because of the transformation of the heart, because of the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost. Then God begins to work. He's got to change their direction because God understands that the Jewish people at that time are not yet going to receive Jesus. That God has to set up a situation An unexpected situation that will be powerful enough to affect Israel's salvation. Let me explain this to you. It's so hard to get the Jewish people to believe in Jesus that only a worldwide movement that is praying and caring about the salvation of the Jewish people will be strong enough to get them saved. That's how hard it is. Therefore, he has a mission to the Gentiles, and this is why Paul says salvation has come to the Gentiles for the purpose of making Israel jealous. So now God realizes, understands, he's not surprised by it, that there's got to be a mission to the Gentiles. How's he going to get that done? Number one, he takes the most unlikely candidate to lead that, message, uh, that mission. Who's the most unlikely candidate? Paul. Paul. He's on his way up to Damascus to arrest Jewish believers in Jesus because they taught this heresy that the glory of God in the Messiah himself, that Messiah, the glory of God on earth, was crucified. What a heretical, dastardly, blasphemous doctrine. And so he's going to go up and arrest these guys for teaching something that is shameful and blasphemous, and bring them to Jerusalem to be beaten and jailed. They couldn't kill him, They didn't have that authority. You know, when you see the, uh, the, the stoning of Stephen, that was not legal. So he's on his way to Damascus. And on the way, he's knocked to the ground. And he sees this person, and he doesn't know who it is, unlike many people that have a vision of Jesus who know, right, right away. He didn't know. Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Yeshua, who you're persecuting. Oi! <laughs> Have you ever been going for something full bore, 100% zeal, thinking absolutely it was God, and then you are immediately stopped and told that what you're doing is totally counter to God. Ouch. So he's blinded. He's taken to Damascus to see Ananias. Ananias has a vision. I'm bringing a guy by the name of Shaul of Tarsus to see you. No, don't bring him! Persecuting all the way. It's okay. I've taken care of him. He's blind. (laughs) Won't be able to hurt you. But I've called him. Rabbinically educated on the leading rabbi of his day under Gamaliel I. I've taken care of it. Educated in Greek education as well. Roman citizen. The choice of God to do this. So he goes up to Damascus and Ananias prays for him and there he receives the charge that he is going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Isn't this amazing? We're so used to reading the Bible. It goes right over our heads. We don't see the weight of it. It's just its so amazing. Now, when I went to seminary, I told you I went to a very liberal seminary. They thought that the reason people had visions like Paul is there was something wrong with them. They didn't believe in visions. They were naturalists. And they thought that Paul had malaria or epilepsy or some other problem, and that's why he had these visions and stuff, you know, caught up to the third heaven. So the reason all of this happened in Acts chapter 9 was probably a mosquito. really. You didn't have the privilege of getting a good seminary education, things that you could learn that you would never have thought of. And you know what? I, I want to tell you that God can use mosquitoes because that mosquito that bit Paul and then, and then got Ananias, and Ananias had the word about Paul who got this uh, thing from heaven, but that just continues because the only way Paul's mission to the Gentiles is going to be accepted is if the apostles in Jerusalem accept it. So how are they going to accept it? Well, God's got to work on that. See, the issue of Acts chapter 10 isn't about a centurion by the name of Cornelius getting saved. That's not the importance of the story. The importance of the story is that the salvation of Cornelius and his family is what opens the door to the mission of Paul. So Peter's up on the roof, having a nice time, he's playing that old rock record up on the roof, you know, in the middle of town, I found a paradise up on the roof, you know, he's up there, how many remember that song, good song to play, before you teach, yeah, before you teach on that passage, you want to play that old rock song, and uh, while he's up there, Mrs. Peter is making uh, lunch, he was the only married pope, you know, catholics do admit he wasn't a married pope they do admit that and so you know he's up there having a nice time and then all of a sudden he gets this vision of the sheet coming down from heaven man there are a lot of good things in that sheet rose pork and orange sauce all sorts of chinese delicacies They just weren't prepared yet, but Peter could imagine what they would be like because Jews are the small population but the primary supporters of the Chinese food industry. And so that is the ones that are not religious. And so he says to God, when God tells him to kill and eat, my lips have never touched anything unclean. Three times he has the vision, and then men come from Cornelius, From Caesarea, he's in Jaffa. It's a little trip from Jaffa to Caesarea, you know, Caesarea, they say in English. It's a little trip along the shore. And then he knew what the vision meant. It didn't mean he was supposed to make pork chops. It meant he was supposed to travel with these men, which he considered to be unkosher. Travels with them, finds out Cornelius is a God-fearer. That is, he he came to believe in the God of Israel, gave up his idols, and he speaks the gospel to them. And while he is still speaking, the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they speak in tongues. Now, the Jewish believers that accompanied Peter were shocked. And Peter says... Who can forbid water seeing that these have received like gift as us? And he immerses them in water in the name of Yeshua. Now, look, Peter taught in Acts chapter 2 repent, believe, be baptized, and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here you have these Gentiles who believe, get filled with the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't know that they repented yet, and he doesn't know, and he knows that they haven't been baptized yet. It's all out of order. So he's got to catch up with the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying in Acts chapter 10 is, quick, get them into the water. They've already got the Holy Spirit. Because in those days, immersion in water baptism came came first. It's after that that there's a persecution. Persecution. And then there's a scattering. And there isn't an explicit ministry or mission to the Gentiles yet. But some of the people in Antioch, some of the Jews that went to Antioch shared the gospel with Gentiles, probably God-fearers that were interested in the God of Israel. And when they created the Antioch congregation, it became a mixed congregation of Jew and Gentile. That was as far as it went, but there was still no explicit mission to the Gentiles. This is a Jewish gospel for Jewish people still. The issue was not how can a Jew believe in Jesus and still say Jewish. That was not an issue. The issue was how can a Gentile possibly believe in this? And then finally you get that dramatic word, separate from me Barnabas and Paul for the ministry to which I've called them, and they get sent out But even when they get sent out and they go to Cyprus, where we have a mission, by the way, wonderful mission in Cyprus, training school, discipleship, kind of YWAM with Jewish roots, you know. They go to Cyprus, and they're always first going to the synagogue because they have to give the gospel to the Jewish people first. And then when they reject it, just like Paul said, because... Their rejection means reconciliation for the world. Then they go to the Gentiles, and Paul raises up churches in Cyprus, and then you know how the story goes. He raises up churches in Asia Minor and other places. But then there's a controversy, and the controversy is don't Gentiles have to be circumcised and keep the whole law of Moses to be saved? And there were some Jews that believed that, probably under the influence of the Shemite Pharisees in Israel who believed that Gentiles could not be saved unless they converted to Judaism. So we read in Acts chapter 15, some of the men coming down from Judea Verse 1, we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had a big argument and debate with them, now it's so interesting they translate, but I like the other translation that said, no little argument with them. They put it in the positive, but you know, I I like the understatement, but big argument. The brothers appointed Paul and Barnabas with some others from them to go up to Jerusalem, to the apostles and elders about this issue. So they went on their way. They went to the Antioch community. They shared with the Antiochians. And uh, even there, they again run into some of the party of the Pharisees, uh, Jewish believers that were still Pharisees, probably Shamite or uh, influence, saying it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. They gathered together... And the proof that this was not true came from Peter because Peter tells about what happened in the house of Cornelius. If Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to be saved and are fully accepted by God without circumcision, we're speaking of men here, of course, if that's true, then it means there are two kinds of people in the body of Christ. Jews who are circumcised, because it never says that Jews should not be circumcised. Jews still are circumcised. And Gentiles who are not. And then Paul gives testimony that the same signs and wonders of confirmation of Gentiles coming into the congregation of Yeshua The same kind of witness occurred as happened in the ministry of Peter in the house of Cornelius. As a matter of fact, I believe that the primary proof for the acceptance of the Gentiles without circumcision was the manifestations of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The manifestations of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was the ultimate proof That God had fully accepted the Gentiles without circumcision. This is how important the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Not some kind of hidden quiet thing. Well, they say they believe in Jesus. No, it was God's power coming and wham and speaking in tongues and prophecy and showing that they were fully accepted. They didn't have a theology of it. The theology of the Gentiles coming into the body of believers, the body of the Jewish believers who were the saved remnant of Israel, the Gentiles coming in and becoming part with them, now has to be defined, and the New Testament has to give us a definition of what that means and a definition of the church. So the one who brings the first part of the definition is the Apostle Jacob. You know his name was Jacob? There was no such name as James in the first century. You look at him, James? A Hebrew name James? No, that's an English name that they put on him. The story is it was because King James wanted to have an Apostle named after him. But that's debated. But it goes back to England, right? English. This is the Apostle Yaakov, or Jacob and he stands up and he says Simon verse 14 has described how God first showed his concern by taking from the gentiles a people for his name taking from the nations and when you read the word gentiles you can replace it with the word nations the actually probably the word gentile here in greek goes back to the word goyim nations in hebrew The words of the prophets agree, as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, namely all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says Adonai, who makes all these things known from of old. And this text and what it means goes right over people's heads. As a matter of fact, I have hardly ever heard this text taught correctly. Hardly ever. So maybe this is something new for you. Generally in the charismatic world, when they read this text, they think that the tabernacle of David has to do with a type of worship. That because when King David took Jerusalem, he wanted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, and when he finally got it there, so it wasn't killing anybody along the road... He set up a tent, and he used to go out to that tent where the ark was and worship. And because David danced before the Lord with all his might when the ark was being brought up, to the extent that Michal got upset with him and uh, despised him for his dancing, the charismatics assumed that what David did in that tabernacle was he went out there and had a riotous time of charismatic dancing. David had his own personal Toronto experience in that tabernacle. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? We have no evidence of that. But the tabernacle of David is said to be this tent that David set up. And I'm, you know, I'm killing a few sacred cows here. I hope you don't mind. The pastor, if he doesn't agree, he can clean it up in the future weeks. That's his advantage over me. His disadvantage is he might not accept his cleaning it up, but... So you've got this charismatic interpretive tradition. In Judaism, that's called a midrash, an interpretive tradition not really based in the text, which says that tabernacle of David, good, Holy Spirit, you know, foreshadowing the new covenant. Tabernacle of Moses, bad, traditional, ritualistic. God hates ritual. And then when David backslid and decided to build a temple, God help us, And then Solomon built the the big temple, and that was really a backward step from the freedom of the tabernacle. Wow. You know, as a Jew, sometimes I say, my head's spinning. Where's that in the text? Where is that in the text? So this is interpreted in the charismatic world that in the last days we're going to restore davidic worship and we're going to see a much bigger harvest of the nations and so what james is saying here is look the holy spirit was poured out so now we've got davidic worship restored and we're seeing a harvest but in the latter rain we're going to see a much greater expression of the tabernacle of david and we get into our worship services and we dance the charismatic two steps we're going to have a great harvest But the tabernacle of David in Amos 9 is not about a tabernacle of worship. It's about a tabernacle of government. It's about the restoration of the government of David because Amos perceives that the Davidic line of government in the Davidic kings would be cut off. And Isaiah talks about it in chapter 11 as a stump out of which grows a shoot. And it's the restoration of the ruling house. Tabernacle is a metaphor, a synonym for a ruling house. So it's the restoration of the ruling house of David, which comes about in David's greater son, the Messiah. And the prophets say in Isaiah chapter 11, Amos chapter 9, when that ruling house is reestablished, the nations will flood into the kingdom of God. So you read it in Isaiah chapter 11. He'll be a banner for the nations. You read about it in Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66. Zechariah chapter 14, that all nations will go up and celebrate the feast of two Sukkot. Isaiah 2, all nations will breed their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And they'll say, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah, the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. World peace. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So therefore, the restoration of the tabernacle of David leads to the nations coming to the knowledge of God. And when you look at Amos chapter 9 in context, it's a prediction of the establishing of the rule of the Messiah leading to the millennium. It's a millennial prediction. The age to come. How does a prophecy in Amos 9 about the millennium solve the question of what's going on in the church, the Jewish church? It solves it by the same logic that we spoke about this morning in Luke chapter 7. When John the Baptist said, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And Jesus shows him that he is the Messiah, that the kingdom had really come, and that the proof of the kingdom coming in an already not yet way was the blind receive sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised up, and blessed is he who is not offended at me. Yes, the kingdom had come, and you are invited into it, and he that is least in the kingdom that comes into it now is greater than John the Baptist. So what Jesus points to is signs of the manifestation of the kingdom to prove that the kingdom was real and that the kingdom of God, the age to come, had broken into this age, and how much more in his resurrection. The resurrection is an age-to-come thing. And it happened then. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an age-to-come thing. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Pentecost was an age-to-come thing of breaking in. And what Jacob is saying, if the age-to-come has broken in, And Jesus has already begun to reign enthroned in heaven. Yes, he will come down to earth and literally rule on the throne of David in Jerusalem. But if he has already begun to reign from the throne in heaven at the right hand of God, then the appropriateness of age-to-come things happening now is secure. And if we have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and he has begun to reign, so it's appropriate that Gentiles begin to come into the kingdom of God so that the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God is a proof that he is the Messiah and that the kingdom has come. Wow. He's a pretty smart theologian. Most of the church hasn't caught up with what he understood. So the first thing that comes is that Gentiles should not be circumcised they shouldn't become jews because if they do that they're not manifesting the age to come because the characteristic of the age to come is that israel and the nations are one under the rule of the messiah so therefore the characteristic now of the body of believers in a foreshadowing of the age to come is that you and gentile are one under the rule of the messiah you get this do you see this the logic is amazing You see Paul quoting the same kind of understanding in Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15, Paul describes his mission to the Gentiles in these terms. Verse 8, I declare that Messiah has become a servant to the circumcised for the sake of God's truth in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's for the Jewish people. And for the Gentiles to glorify God in his mercy. Jew and Gentile. They don't get smushed together in homogenization. As it is written, for this reason I will give you praise among the Gentiles and sing your name. Again it says, rejoice, O nations, Gentiles, with his people, Israel. You don't replace Israel. You bring the Gentiles to connection Rejoice with them. Also, again, it says, Praise Adonai, all you nations or Gentiles, let all peoples praise him. And then he quotes Isaiah 11 There shall come forth a shoot of Jesse, and the one who arises to rule the nations, and him shall the nations hope. Wow. But there's more. Okay, Gentiles come to believe in Jesus. If that's all you had, you have Jews who come to believe in Jesus that are the Savior of Israel, and now they're joined with Gentiles who come to believe in Jesus. And we Jews are the chosen people, and you Gentiles are saved, but uh, you're kind of like second class. Right? Because the Jews are the priestly people. Who are you? You're Gentiles. I'm the priest, you're the Gentiles. And if we didn't have other texts in the New Testament... If we just had the ones that I read, you would feel like second-class citizens. You would be saved. You'd be glad for that. But you'd accept your role, hopefully, second-class. You'd be humble enough to do that if that's what the Scripture said. But it doesn't say that. Instead, it now describes a status for the Gentiles who come during this age, not the ones that come after the day of the Lord, but for the people from the nations who come now, it describes a status for them that absolutely boggles the mind. Not a status that is superior to the Jews, but a status with the Jewish believers described in these terms. First, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. At that time, you walked in the way of the world in conformity to the ruler of the domain domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit who is now operating in the sons of disobedience. We, too, all lived among them. He says, we Jews as well in the cravings of our flesh. So we're not so good. By nature, we were children of wrath. But God was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together. Jew and Gentile, alive together in the Messiah, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in the Messiah Yeshua to show in the world to come, the world to come, the measureless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in the Messiah Yeshua. Then it goes on for the, you know, to the famous, for by grace you've been saved. Where is Yeshua seated today? Where? He heavenly places exactly where? At the right hand of God. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is enthroned. And it says of Gentiles who believe in Jesus, uncircumcised from the nations, that you're seated with him at his throne. Do you understand the status implications of that? You're there with me, a Jew, me, the Jew, and you, the Gentile. We're there seated with him at his right hand at the throne of God. That is the highest status that is attainable. There ain't any higher to go. This is astonishing. And you realize that this is priestly language because now as we get to Ephesians 2, you're going to, uh, farther on in Ephesians 2, you find that. Very parallel to the book of Hebrews. The tabernacle on earth and the temple were a pattern representing the reality of a tabernacle in heaven. And in the tabernacle of heaven, there is a most holy place. The most holy place in the tabernacle of heaven is not an earthly built ark with a representation of a throne on it with the two cherubim. When you get to heaven where God is enthroned and where Yeshua is, it's the real ark, it's the real cherubim, and it's the real throne. The one on earth is a copy. You're enthroned in the most holy place, in the innermost holy place. Now, he goes on and explains this in these terms. Keep in mind, verse 11, At one time you Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcised by those called circumcision, which is performed in flesh by hand. Now, don't disparage that. Some people read it in a disparaging way, and they read into that. At that time, you were separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, wait a minute. Other texts say citizenship in Israel. There is a sense in which Gentiles now have a certain kind of citizenship in Israel, a certain kind of being members of the commonwealth of Israel. You were excluded... You are strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, that's not true of Jewish people before. They were not without God with no hope. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who are once very far off, have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah, for he is our Shalom, the one who made the two into one, the Gentile and the Jew, into one, and broke down the middle wall of separation, Within his flesh he made powerless the hostility, the law code of commandments contained in regulations. He did this in order to create within himself one new man from the two groups making shalom and to, recognize, to reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. And he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by the same Spirit. So you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with God's people. Who are are the God's people in that text? Israel, the Jewish people. So now you are fellow citizens with God's God's people and members of God's household. Paul talks this about a mystery not being made known in previous ages. You see, previous ages, it was made known that the nations would come to the knowledge of God. But it wasn't made known that the Gentiles would be joint heirs and fellow members of the same body and co-sharers of the promise in the Messiah Yeshua. What's he saying here? What were the regulations of the Torah? that were taken away by the cross. Some people think the Mosaic law was crucified. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. He's not talking about those regulations. Everything in Moses that has continued applicability in the New Covenant is taken over and assumed to be part of the New Covenant. You read Moses. You should read Moses, assuming that it applies, unless you can see why it doesn't apply. This is how Paul said to read it. You say, Dan, where did Paul say to read it? There, he said, "All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for in- instruction, and training in righteousness." Where? What Scripture was he talking about? Was the New Testament written when he wrote that? No, he's talking about the Hebrew Bible including Moses. That's the Bible you're instructed. That's where you learn God's ethical standards. That's where you learn what God loves and what God hates. So what are the regulations that were taken away? The hostility. Was it that Jews don't eat pork? Is there a real hostility that I don't eat pork and you do? I don't feel hostile to you if you have a ham sandwich. Is that what he was talking about? Does it create hostility that I circumcise my son and you don't? Oh, you're re-erecting the wall of partition. No, I'm not. I'm just circumcising my son because he's Jewish. What was the hostility, the jealousy that was taken away by the cross? Remember, what happens on the cross is the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice takes place on the altar of altars that is represented and foreshadowed by the altar in the temple. And now you go back and you look at the temple and how it was arranged. And there are degrees of separation. First degree of separation, court of the Gentiles. Yes, Gentiles who want to turn to God can go into that court, they can only go so far because there is a wall, a partition right there, and it said right in that temple, if you go farther than this, you get death penalty, and the Romans would enforce it. Then you had the court of the women. Women could get to the next degree, better than the Gentiles' women, but still, only the men could go into the inner court. And there was one more degree of separation. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place. So when Yeshua died, how fitting that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Because most people have read into that, but I think it's a reasonable reading in, that this means a new access into the most holy place, into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. And that's what the book of Hebrews brings out. So what Paul is saying is the degrees of separation so that you could only get so close to God according to your given status by birth is over. That part of the law doesn't apply. If they ever rebuild a temple, I don't know what that's going to mean and how to respond to it. I hope they don't do it while I'm living. Then I don't have to worry about it, I have to wrestle with it. But generally, you understand whatever happens with that earthly temple before the second coming, if they build it, The essential importance of priestly status has been solved. And now the Gentiles and Jesus are given a priestly status that is equal to the Jewish people. And because Jewish people haven't yet accepted Jesus... It's probably a higher status than the Jewish people except for those that have accepted Jesus. Yes, the Jewish people are still elect, but you with the Jewish believers in Jesus, in Jesus, have now attained a priestly status at as high as you can go, and you have become one new man with the Jewish believers. So by definition now, the church is the priestly people of God in Jesus that have a status to be seated with him at the very throne of God spiritually. Wow. That wasn't predicted in the Hebrew prophets. It's new revelation. But there's more. You share in that priestly status, but you only share in that priestly status because you have become bonded to the Jewish people and their destiny. You don't have that priestly status because you're a people apart from the Jewish people. Because in Romans chapter 11, Paul says this. Of the Jewish believers in Jesus, in verse 5, he says the Jewish believers are a remnant according to God's choice. And in verse 16, he says that we are the first fruits, so the whole batch of dough is holy. What this means is you take a piece of dough... You dedicate it to God and you burn it. And once you do that, the whole batch of dough is now holy and can be used. And he's saying here the Jewish believers are not proof that God has rejected Israel. Paul says God has not rejected his people because I'm an Israelite. And he's got this whole idea of the representative remnant in mind. And what he's saying is that the whole nation even in their unbelief, is still holy and chosen by God in part because there is this sanctifying remnant that is first fruits. I'm going to ask a question. If the Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus are now made one with that sanctifying remnant, and that sanctifying remnant is part of Israel... Bonded to Israel, still part of Israel, you become connected to Israel in your connection to that remnant. You become a people who are bonded to and connected to Israel through the Jewish believers who are still part of Israel. But he even makes it stronger. In Romans chapter 11, he says, in verse 24, You were cut out of by that which by nature is a wild olive tree. So all the nations are wild olive trees. And you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. Who's the cultivated olive tree? Israel. Before Jesus came, Israel and the people of God are one. The olive tree is the people of God. You only have Israel as the people of God before Jesus came. But now those from the nations are grafted into the cultivated olive tree, Israel. They're grafted into Israel... How much more will these natural branches be grafted in? And then, of course, he says uh, that they will be grafted back in. All Israel will be saved, though they are enemies for your sake concerning the chosenness they're loved on account of the fathers for the gift and call of God are irrevocable. I preached about that this morning. It's not my point. My point is that the Gentiles are described here as the people that are grafted onto Israel. Connected to the Jewish believers who, with the Jewish believers, you're one new man. That's one metaphorical way of seeing. But the other metaphorical way of seeing is you've been joined to Israel. They're both in the text. And it leads you to a definition of the church. The Jewish part and the Gentiles, but the church is the people from all nations who are joined to Israel and its destiny for the sake of the redemption of the world. Wow. So if the church does not have a burden for the salvation of Israel, if they don't see themselves connected to Israel, they have an identity crisis. And they solve that identity crisis by saying, we've replaced Israel, we are now Israel, and the Jewish people don't count. Or they solve that identity crisis by saying, we're the bride of Christ, we're not Israel, we're not connected to Israel. Israel has its own thing. But the Bible doesn't solve that issue either way. It says, no, you become connected to Israel. You're grafted into Israel, and your identity is connected to Israel, and your future uh, uh, destiny is with Israel. Because you become bonded to Israel through belief and attachment to Jesus, who is the king of Israel and corporately part of Israel. We call this an Israel-connected Christology. You can't separate Jesus from Israel. So when you believe in Jesus, you get connected to Israel. You can't separate the one new man from Israel. When you become connected to the Jewish believers, you become connected to Israel. And this is why the battle of the ages, the last day's war, it's all connected to Israel. Because upon Israel turning to the Lord hinges world redemption. I even told you that the Roman Catholic Catechism says that. It does. But it doesn't connect it to our role in seeing Israel made jealous. Therefore, Israel is part of the identity of the church. But if that's so, then if we saw it rightly, the church should be part of the identity of Israel, and at least we, as the saved remnant of Israel, the Messianic Jewish movement must be a pro-church, church-embracing movement. And boy, not some of us in our screwy movement haven't gotten that one right yet. We've got to embrace the church. But they worship on Christmas and Easter. I don't care. I don't care. They're worshiping Jesus coming into the world. So what if it's the wrong day? But at Easter, doesn't that mean Feast of Ishtar? it means resurrection Sunday and they may have the wrong day but we might have the wrong day too just get you know, get a life <laughs> yeah we have differences you say Shavuot I mean we say Shavuot you say Pentecost we say Passover, Pesach you say Easter you say tomato I say tomato let's call the whole thing off that's you know you've almost had a George Gershwin moment in the history of the church here in terms of Israel and the church, let's call the whole thing off. But we can't call the whole thing off because God has called us together in world missions and for the redemption of Israel because we are moving together to see the climax of the second coming. But unless the church sees its identity as tied to Israel, they'll never understand what's going on. They'll never understand why all the nations are turning against Israel. Do you really think it's because we mistreat the Palestinians? And we do. We don't mistreat the Palestinians nearly as badly as the Arabs treat each other. But that doesn't matter because of ethnic pride, right? I mean, in Syria, the Shiite-oriented people can kill 500,000 of the Sunnis. The world doesn't care. They don't say, let's go boycott the Shiites. Right? Why? China just destroyed Tibet. You want to boycott China? Oh, no, no. We're dependent on them for trade. You see the injustice here? The world turns against Israel because that is where we see it all played out and where we see the glory of God revealed for the redemption of the world. And the church has to own its responsibility to see the glory of God revealed in that ancient place. So what I wanted to share with you tonight is that this idea of a passion for the salvation of Israel is not some side eddy that's off the stream, the main current of God's purposes. It's in the main current of God's purposes. And that's why I really want you to become connected to our ministry. Sign up, pray for us. Don't just hear a message and walk home. Have a practical response to it. And uh, my dream is that your church will embrace prayer for us as a specific ministry, as well as the Jewish people, and that you will see Jewish people come to the Lord, and that you partner with the Messianic congregation and start winning a lot of Jewish people to the Lord. And they can help train you to do it. Right? Will you train these folks how to share the gospel with Jewish people? Will you? They will. Because you're more effective than we are if you get a little training. Because you're not considered traitors for believing in Jesus. We are. All right, I'm going to pray for you. Let's stand up. Father, we thank you that now in status... And in salvation, there's neither Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. We all have the highest status. We all have the same salvation. We all have the same Savior. We all have the same blood. We all have the same kingdom that we've entered into. We all have the same ability through the power of the Spirit. We all have the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We all have prophecy and speaking in tongues. We all have all those things that are part of new covenant realities. And we want to receive your power now to be instruments of the salvation of your ancient people in the name of Jesus. And Now speak to those that are here. Speak to them, Lord. Speak to them to connect to this in a real way. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Light, life, power, grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor, all yours.